So a couple of weeks ago, I had the pleasure of sitting down and talking to Pratham Mittal, the founder of Masters Union. And we talked about his life and his entrepreneurial journey. And there was no plan, the interview was not scripted, there was no structure to it, it was just a free-flowing conversation. But the thing that I found really fascinating about his story, his entrepreneurial journey actually began long before he registered his first company. From experimenting with Yahoo stores as a kid to discovering hackathons in his college days, and then building this really fascinating tool called Nuisance, what's really interesting is how multiple times in his journey, he had to stop short. He wasn't able to fully pursue entrepreneurship because of the demands and requirements of the education system that he was in. School ended up occupying so much of his time and energy that he couldn't become the entrepreneur that he is today until he'd finished up with university. And so with his current company, Masters Union, Pratham is actually creating a place, a program that allows students to experiment with and pursue entrepreneurial thinking to a much larger extent than he was able to during his college days. This company encourages students to think outside of the box and tackle real world problems in creative ways. In fact, after we'd finished recording the interview, Pratham told me that a quarter of the students that went through their first batch actually went on to found their own companies. For me personally, I learned a lot from the conversation. He's a seasoned entrepreneur at this point, so he has tons of gyan to share about his personal philosophy when it comes to business, entrepreneurship, and starting up. And I hope that you're able to take away as much from these two hours as I did during the time that I personally spent with Pratham Mittal. What we've done here at Backstage with Millionaires with most of the people that we've talked to, and this is a gap that I sort of identified while I was listening to other interviews that you've given, I want to hear about your life, you know? You talked to, um, to one host of one, uh, one video podcast. Uh, he asked you, where did you pick up entrepreneurship? Like, where did you learn how to do what you're currently doing? Uh, and one of the answers that you gave was that you, you sort of consume the life story of other entrepreneurs, right? And we have a lot of people watching our channel who are kind of in the same situation. Like they want to start up someday. They want to become an entrepreneur. They don't really know how. And they look at someone like you and they see a successful guy. He's mm -hmm. running this company. There's people flocking to Master's Union. They want to attend this program. Um, and they're like, how did, he, how did he go from point A to point B? Point A being just a regular kid, right? Doesn't know what to do with his life, living in Jalandar, right? Um, so I think, where can we start? I guess we can start with, hmm. even before you, starting right. with your, I believe you come from like a, like a business family, right? Mm -hmm. is, it, is it your grandfather who was like the first in the family to get into business or did it go even further before that? No, it was way before that actually. Is it? Yeah, so essentially we come from this community called Banya. Hmm. Right, and the Mittal. The Mittal is part of the Banya uh -huh. caste. And what's interesting about these people is that for, I mean, I think for thousands of years, these people have been in business, right? They've never been employed. They've always just started their own business. Maybe small businesses, maybe ultra small businesses, micro businesses, but yet they've always been self-employed. Um, so as far as I know our family's history, I only know till my granddad. And I know for a fact that, you know, he had to sort of, you know, he had to move with, uh, the partition, etc., and then uh, he started a small uh, bakery or a confectionery um, in in Jalandhar. Something and, sweet house, right? Yes, it's a it's a we in, in Hindi we call it halwai. Hmm. Um, but yeah, essentially he ran a, a, a store which sold sweets, desserts, um, and uh, you know what was interesting at the time was I think in the 60s, 70s, uh, dessert in India was very important, right? Dessert sort of 
meant celebration, right? And and that's how he sort of built his brand. Uh, you know that that his his name, the, the the name of the sweet shop was Lovely Sweets. It sort of became attached to a sense of celebration, a sense of excitement, um, and that's why uh, you know till today the sweet shop is still existing and it's still called Lovely Sweets. That same that same location. That same location. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's it's cool. gotten slightly bigger. Re- renovated and all, but still not there. even hardly. You know, it, it's it's kept its own charm. And it's still run by your your family as it's well. Still run by my yeah. Wow. So then your grandfather must have passed that entrepreneurial mindset onto your father. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's an expectation you have when you're born, right? That you will start your own business. Ah, okay. It was. It would never be any other way. So it's not that you will join the family sweet shop business. It's that you'll start your own thing. No, it's either either or. Either or. Either okay. or. Yeah. Either. But or. it seems like it's been the or in every case. Yeah. Right? Your grandfather was in. Confectionery, yeah. then your father's in education, Correct. and now you are also in education. Yeah, exactly. So your dad picked up kind of where your grandfather left off. So the interesting thing about the halwai or the mithai or the sweets shop was that uh, all the business there is done in cash. Ah, okay. Right. So what that means is that the promoter or the owner has to be sitting behind the counter the entire time because you can't trust people with cash, right? Uh, and this is back in the day before GST, before all of these things, right? So you couldn't. And so my dad, when he entered business, he said, I want to not do a business that involves cash. Mm. Because then that would mean that I have to sit behind the counter exactly, every day. Exactly, exactly. Right? And what that would mean is that I can't grow. I can't grow beyond one store or two stores. Uh, and it can't be a large business if you're you know, dealing in cash. So that's when he early on figured out that you know, he has to uh, you know, go beyond sweets and confectionery and, and mithai. And so he started his career in automobiles. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. Okay. That's interesting, though. Like that was his sort of innovation, right? That's you know he took what your grandfather had established. He saw some flaws, right? Not that I mean your grandfather started in a different time, so that was how things were done. But then your father's generation, he looked and saw like you know what, being in front of the the counter means it's not scalable, right? right? Or sorry, being behind the counter. Right. So let's take this idea and let's actually make a scalable business scalable that can. Business. I think the core value is hustle, mm. right? That we got to figure this out, right? That if we have taken a target or if you've given ourselves a target, we're going to do whatever it takes to achieve this target, right? And there will be problems, but we'll take those problems in our stride. So when he, uh, he started his first business or when he wanted to start his first business, uh, Bajaj, uh, I don't know if you know about Bajaj, which is a large scooter company in the country. At that time, it was the largest. Uh, and Bajaj had come up with this new scooter called Chetak. Mm. Right, and Chetak was sort of the talk of the town, right? It was like the the Lambo of the day, uh, and and everyone wanted to buy Chetak. But in Jalandhar, where my dad was uh, stationed, there was no Bajaj dealership, so there was no one selling Bajaj scooters. Ah. So someone had to go down to Ludhiana or to Amritsar or to Chandigarh to buy a scooter. So he said, you know, let me reach out to Bajaj and see whether they'd be open to allowing me to set up a Bajaj showroom, a store in Jalandhar. Uh, and once he sort of figured out that this is the business he wants to do, then he did whatever he could to make sure that he does that business and is successful at it. Right? And so that hustle and that sense of setting a target and sort of going all out at it, I think that is that hustle culture which he got from my uh, granddad and, and from, I think, this Banya lineage. I, I truly do believe so. Yeah, there's the hustle. That's one component. And I think also this other component is kind of identifying a need in the market. 
right? Some gap that nobody else has filled and then coming in. And it seems obvious, like looking at it now that yeah, there's no Bajaj showroom. So of course, set one up. You're going to be like the only, uh, there's no competition, yeah. right? But probably at that time, you know, it took a while for him to really validate that idea and actually make a move on it. So he's in automotives, scooters, and then eventually, how did that transition? Sorry, I know we're talking about your dad here and this no, is that's, that's, that's about you, but I want to start there because I know that, you know, we've, we've, we're already starting to build this foundation, right, of like hustling, identifying a need in the market. These are like almost like family values that would have been passed on to you, right? Um, so from scooters, how did it transition into uh, LPU and like education? Sure. Uh, so he had done 10 years of automobiles, right? He had, he had sold a lot of automobiles in those 10 years. India was growing like anything. And, um, and you know, he owned that local market. Uh, and he continued to use the name Lovely, uh-huh. right? So it was Lovely Autos, okay. the name of the Bajaj dealership. And then later he started Maruti. Lovely Sweet House, then Lovely... Sweet House or... Lovely Sweets House, yes. Yeah, and then... Lovely Autos. Lovely Autos. Yeah. And so he started that, which was a very cool experience uh, for him. For 10 years, he, and that's where he made some money, right? Like that's where he built some wealth. Um, and in, at the end of 10 years, he was like, hey, listen, you know, uh, this was a great experience. It was a great run. Now I want to sort of pay back to my local community, just my local community, because I mean, all his customers were people who are from Jalandhar and all his customers were people who used to previously buy sweets from his father. Hmm. So, uh, so that, that local market, uh, he owed a lot to, he felt like, right? So to pay them back, he decided to set up a small institute, a small school, a college. Okay. Uh, and that's how sort of his game with education started, right? Ah. Um, which was just to pay back to his local community. So he set up a small college, just 240 students, um, and it was affiliated to a local university. Okay. So back in the day, there was no concept of private universities. Mm. Um, you would have to build a small college and that college would be affiliated to a government, a local government university. Got it. Uh, so he set up a small college and 240 students ran that for a few years. And what he realized again was a problem, right? Was that in India, education had zero innovation in it, right? Um, it was still, the universities were still prescribing the same syllabus that they've been prescribing for the last 40 years. Uh, the examination pattern was very predictable. Students knew exactly what questions were going to come. It was that stupid a system. And he said, I, if I'm imparting education in my institute or in my college, uh, you know, it has to be better than this, right? And to create an education system better than the existing one, he had to basically build his own private university. And did he have to wait until after liberalization for that? Or was he able to do it even before? This is now 10 years after liberalization. Okay. Right. But still, education had not been liberalized. Hmm. The economy had been. But now this is, we're talking around 2003, 2004. Okay. Uh, economy has been liberalized, but there are no private universities in India. In fact, there is no concept of private education in India, hmm. in the higher education. So then he has to figure out a way to set up a private university, right? But, you know, there was a myth or there was a general understanding that education is always going to be a government project, right? right? You cannot actually have a private university. No one appreciated or understood that fact. So when dad uh, decided to sort of set up a private university, he had to start from scratch, right? So he figured out that all universities across the world, across India, uh, that are all government, they're all set up by an act of the state assembly or the parliament. So you can't just go and register, like you register a company. You have to get a law passed in your local legislature. Wow. Or the parliament of the country. 
Um, so he was like, hey, let's give it a shot. He's already like influential at this point, right? Very locally. Yeah. Right? In that small city. Mm. And it, it's a tier three city, mm. right? So for him to dream of building a university that even like the Ambani's or the Tata's or you know, Godrej's, they have not done yet. Still ambitious. Very, very ambitious. ambitious. Yeah. And, and I think it's also like a little bit of naivete. Naivety? Yeah. 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 So he's also naive, right? He, yeah, you have to be. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, you know, let me give this a shot. So he actually sort of somehow figured out a way to introduce a bill in the local Punjab assembly. That bill got passed after a couple of years of like, that's a different story altogether. But he set up India's first private university. Wow. Today, there are more, more than 700 private universities, all of which are grandfathered under that LPU Act. So, you know, Across India. Across India. It's not just a, a Punjabi act. No, so, I mean, then, I mean, the act was then borrowed by other states. And right. then, you know, because it... Set a precedent. Set a precedent for it. Wow. And so now there are, I think, almost 30% of all students who graduate in India, graduate from a university that was directly or indirectly founded uh, under the LPU Act. You know, so that's the story. Oh, sorry. sorry, the camera just... Uh, I, I can imagine. Just yeah, I, 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 I saw you. <laughs> but it's okay, because I didn't need to be on camera there. Yeah. This one's good? Still recording? Again, all good. Okay, so that is, I mean, probably that story is out there the story of yeah. LPU, and you can look it up, Google it, whatever. But it's very, I think, hearing it from you and kind of, I'm starting to already like connect the dots, right? Uh, because, like you said, that, that, how do you say that word? Naive, naivete. Naivete, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Just, he was naive. <laughs> he, he was naive, exactly. And like I've heard the same thing from many of the people that I've interviewed. If I had known, this is the phrase that they use, right? Like if I had known how difficult it was going to be, I never would have started, yeah. right? You have to be kind of foolish, right? Yeah. Because if you're, and that's that's another, isn't that like Steve Jobs or something? Stay, stay hungry, hungry, stay, stay foolish, foolish or something. Yeah. Right, so he had that, right? And he actually went out and created a, or at least influenced people to create a law so that he could actually start the business that he wanted to. Right. And it's education, right? So it's, I mean, it is a business. It makes a lot of money, of course. It's a its a human need to a certain point, right? Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, it's also, it's helping people, mm -hmm. right? You could argue that scooters help people and confectionery helps people, but like education more than anything else helps the society to progress, yeah. right? And especially back 2003, 2004, like that was the need of the hour, mm -hmm. right? And it still is. Yeah. So you would have grown up kind of seeing your dad like building this thing. When you, when you were born, was that, would that have been back in the auto days? Yes. Lovely autos. Yeah. And then he went ahead and started this while you were a kid. Absolutely. So I think uh, as I was growing up, um, he made sure that I attended the best schools and the best colleges. right? And, and he sent me to a school called the Dune School in the mountains. Uh, and then when he would come to drop me off, he would actually take notes of you know how the classroom is structured, of you know how the blackboards are looking, and you know of how the, the architecture of the school is in such a way that it sort of you know promotes learning. So he would take cues from anything that he could. And so when I got into college in the U.S., um, he came to drop me, and I, I can't tell you I mean, how many pictures he took right to take inspiration from. Uh, and then he would come back and sort of leverage those learnings to build a better university here in India. Wow, interesting. They didn't realize that they had a spy on their hands. <laughs> was sending you you into the schools as like an infiltrator. Infiltrator, yeah. <laughs> Come back and tell me everything so that we can implement it with LPU. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's another thing with an entrepreneur, right? Like they learn like from anything. Yeah. Like, they can get inspired like with the smallest things. So he came here, in fact. And I'm not kidding. He looked at this wall. 
like the wall right here. And he said, hey, listen, what is this? I said, this is chipboard. He's like, why did you use chipboard? He said, because this is really good with so sound absorption and it's very cheap. He asked me like how much per square foot it is. I said, some 150 rupees, like that's it. And he made a mental note. He took a note on his phone and then he, then he called up his like contractor in, in Jalandhar. He said, listen, like make sure that from now on, all the walls that we have in such studios are like chipboard and not like the expensive. That's so you know, funny. So he takes like cues from everything. Yeah. Now, I mean, it's cool now. It's rustic, yeah. right? But back in, back in the early, like the beginning of the century, it would have been like, wow, you guys can't afford a proper wall. Exactly. <laughs> that's so funny. By the way, I mean, that's your backdrop right now on the camera. We didn't, we didn't set it up. We didn't know yeah, we were going to talk about this, <laughs> but it just came up. Yeah. So you would have, I mean, you would have watched your dad probably have a lot of, he was probably away a lot, right? Busy with the business, but also like very inspiring, I'm sure, seeing like looking up to him and learning from his successes, also probably some of his mistakes, I'm sure he made along the way, even though at that point he was already a successful businessman. So now I wanna get into you, finally, after like whatever it has been, 30 minutes of the interview. Mm -hmm. um, so, how, you know, how, I mean, it started with your dad, obviously, like you would have looked up to him, but I wanna know like at what, what was the first time that you ever, was it like at the University of Pennsylvania? Was it even before that when you were in Dune School? Was it before that in Jalandhar? Like, what was the first, and you wouldn't even, you wouldn't have noticed it at the time that I'm doing something entrepreneurial, right? You wouldn't have because you're too young and you don't even know, probably know what that word is, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, I didn't learn that word until I was in my 20s. Um, so, you know, what was, the, what was the first, and you'll have to go back obviously in your memory, but like, what would you say was the first experience that you had that was somewhat entrepreneurial? Yeah. So, uh, I think we had just gotten internet at home for the first time. This is probably, I was like 10, 15 years old. Um, and you know, at the time on the, on the internet, there were all these ads like make money, like make 100 rupees in one night. You know, those like uh, clickbait ads, they like try to tell you or trick you into like clicking something because they'll tell you like, oh, you'll make money this way, you'll make money that way, right? And I was just intrigued and I was like, wait, this just sounds too good to be true, right? Let me give it a shot. So one, I clicked on one of those ads, which was basically trying to get me to promote an URL uh, for a product. I think it was um, um, oh, those uh, like phone cases, like back in the day, you had those large phones or pagers. I feel like it was some case for that. And like, hey, if you tell 10 of your friends to click on this link and they purchase using that link, then, then you, get, you make all this money. And I was like, hey, this is easy money. But let me see if I can like actually do it, right? So did you just go out and talk to your friends and be like, buy this thing? Yeah, or, yeah. So I, I, like, I just like went a little bit deep into it, tried to understand what is this URL thing and like, you know, how this entire like affiliate system works. And I'm 15 or 14 years old at this time, but it just like, it just captured my attention, right? And then after that, it was a rabbit hole. Then I started going deeper, deeper, deeper. What is dropshipping? What is e-commerce? What is what Amazon doing? What is like this Flipkart thing, right? So I just went deeper and deeper and started understanding a little bit more about the internet economy, right? How things are bought and sold and you know, what are the products, what is SaaS, what is all of them. So I think uh, down that rabbit hole, I just started exploring my curiosity. So I think that's my initial sort of curiosity bug, right? And from there on, uh, you know, once you're curious enough and once you go deep into anything, that just becomes your passion, right? Then I was like, wait, all these people are making like such interesting businesses without any investment through dropshipping and through e-commerce, I gotta try this. I gotta figure it out, right? And so I remember setting up at the time some Yahoo store. Shopify came much later, but Yahoo stores I think came in like much earlier. Just I set up a Yahoo store. I didn't even end up selling anything. 
but just the you know just the fact that i like set up an account on that website try to sort of like put on some products as listings etc i mean i think that was just a lot of fun just to do right and i would tell my parents say hey, you know i tried this and of course they were like okay okay whatever you know this is this is all fun and games but you know nothing going to come out of it and 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 i sort of believed them but as i still this is interesting um and then you know then the indian education system happened to me so this was before boarding school this is before boarding school or during boarding school okay like when i would come back home uh-huh. for, for holidays but in the boarding school i would get so busy with math and science and history that all these things would sort of go for a toss completely so your curiosity takes a back seat to the traditional education you have to score well right i mean you have the you have to of course because then you have to go to the you know the best university and then you have okay. to yeah so you don't have time to yourself uh, and to explore your own passions i think as an in, as a product of indian education system hmm. uh, still i think i was lucky because i was in a boarding school that focused on not on sports Oh, okay. Right. So I ended up playing a lot of sports. I ended up, you know, swimming quite a bit. All of that stuff. So I think um, I learned a lot of uh, things about life from sport. Uh, you know, about again hustle because, I mean, in sport, if you have to do well, you have to practice harder. You have to like figure out. So I, at the time, um, and we are digressing. So you, you can bring me back whenever you wish to. No. But you know, one time what happened was that I was swimming, and I said, okay, I'm going to be a backstroker. Right. I was naturally good at it. So I became a backstroker. and at that time again uh, very early days of youtube very very early days of youtube and i was like wait we have a coach here uh, and he's teaching everyone the same backstroke that he knows i have a feeling that perhaps there's someone better on youtube who can teach me swimming better right and that's so i went that's on like youtube that's like blasphemy yeah <laughs> and, and i went on youtube and there was this video of this guy teaching backstroke on youtube right and i realized that our coach had been teaching us something fundamentally wrong really yeah so i mean like there's a certain thing you have to do when your hand goes back and he wasn't teaching us that and that would easily shave off 20% of your time wow right and i was like wait he's not teaching us this now i know something that nobody else does mm. and the next day or whatever the next week it was a competition i participated and i won that i i mean i kicked ass in that competition right and i was like wait i mean i, I just like you know there was this information asymmetry i knew a little bit more than anybody else right it's not that i practiced more it's just that i knew like some trick of the trade because of youtube so i think i just went deeper and deeper into the internet um, maybe a little bit more than my generation at the time sure this is this is like people call this the unfair advantage right yeah. you had the internet everyone else had the internet too yeah. but you knew how to leverage it to actually get ahead of the in this case competition i, I think it was also accidental because my room was closest to the the computer lab ah okay right so i could like sneak in at night and nobody would know uh, i think there were a lot of things that that worked out that hmm. i don't i wouldn't say it was just my curiosity got it okay so you're at the dune school you're figuring out about the internet potentially how to set up a business i mean you hadn't like you said you didn't actually go ahead and start selling anything with yahoo sorry was it yahoo store yahoo stores okay so you didn't you didn't actually go ahead with that probably because you had to focus on your studies it would have been too complicated you have to actually get inventory or i mean drop shipping you don't need to touch the product no, itself but no but i think the reason i let it go was because of like payment systems because at that time we didn't have paytm or paypal right. or whatever right yeah. and so and i didn't have an american account because i was in india so there was no way to like close the loop there shoot that would have been cool though hey if it had, if you upi had been a thing oh, yeah, back absolutely. then yeah, yeah. you might have taken a completely different path possibly and today people are i mean like i have a nephew who's 12 and he has an online store maybe you would have dropped out who knows as a dropout yeah. as as a proud dropout um 
but anyway, so you, you went through that, you went through Dune School, then you went to the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I hope I'm not skipping over any entrepreneurial experiences no, along no. the way, because I think the next one that comes to mind from my research anyways is this hackathon. So, yeah. I mean, it, se it seems like that's the next experience. Absolutely. It could be that there was something else. Was there anything else in between? No, no. So I think, I think entrepreneurship is also like a mindset, right? So you're entrepreneurial. I was entrepreneur. I think I was entrepreneurial in my swimming. I was entrepreneurial when I was applying to colleges, right? So for example, all my friends thought that Penn was beyond our reach. So nobody even applied. Right? People were like, no, 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 we can't apply to these top 10 because this is a SAT score requirement is this much and that. And like, you know, like, let's, let's give it a shot. I mean, like, let's set a target. Let's give it a shot. And so I applied to top 20, all 20 colleges, like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Penn, all of the colleges I just applied to. I was like, what's the worst? Right? I'll get rejected, but at least I'll know that I tried. Hmm. And uh, I got rejected from all of them except for Penn. <laughs> I was like, all right. One out of 20 times, luck will like save you. Yeah. I don't think I deserved it at all. But I got it. I think just because I applied enough places, I was bound to trick somebody <laughs> into accepting me. That's amazing. I think so that's also entrepreneurial. You know? Yeah. And I, th and I think, again, it comes back to that same idea of the, of the going on YouTube and, and looking for something that nobody else was even thinking to look for, which was how to do the backstroke stroke properly. Everybody just assumed that the teacher was teaching it properly, right? Uh, your father setting up the lovely autos like... Everybody just assumed that that was the way to do things. You go to another city to buy your scooter, scooter yeah. right? And, and, and everybody assumed that you can't set up a private college, private university. It's just not possible. It can't be done, hmm. right? So the entrepreneur in you, in your family, in your bloodline has this propensity to question the norm and sort of try to see if there's any gaps that nobody else is noticing because they have this herd mentality and they don't even look around to see if there's opportunities lying in wait. Yeah. Bloodline is a stronger word, but yeah. I Sorry. Mean, I, I, I think, I, 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 I think, maybe in the Indian context, in the, that gets a little weird. <laughs> no, but I think it's just, uh, I think, you know, I think 10% of, or maybe 20% of all people have this, right? It's also that I was, I was very privileged to, to have opportunities to like, uh, you know, set up a Yahoo store. I mean, I had the internet, I had a computer at home. Most people wouldn't have that, right? So I think it was, it was the perfect storm. But I'm sure even if your family had come on some hard times, right, at this point in your life, you still would have had the same mindset. It just would have been on a, a smaller scale. Scale, possibly, right? Yeah. Fair. Okay. Uh, and I wanted to say, too, um, oh, are we, are we getting close? We're good? Okay. He has to get one ten, so just checking. Okay. We've got five minutes. Why don't we just reset, take a little break, take a, yeah. take a little glass of water. How are we doing? What time is it? It's uh, 12.55. We have 15 more minutes. 15 minutes. Okay. Recording? Okay. That's one recording. Good, yeah? Okay. And this one? Red light? Yeah, it's on. Okay. The micromanager in me. I love it. I, I wanted to, uh, this is sort of my story a little bit, but um, I had a similar experience. So there was this Adobe Creative Scholarship. I don't think they offer it anymore. Uh, but I was in this, this uh, course in high school, grade 12. Um, I can't even remember. I think it was like a creative design course. It was just like a very creative course. Photography, video design, all these things jammed into one class. Uh, I went to like a creative arts school. But the teacher told everybody, hey, Adobe reached out to me via email and said, we're offering this scholarship. Do any of your students, are they interested in applying? 
and they give out they give forty thousand U.S. dollars yeah. for your four years of education,、yeah. and I was like, oh, that's a lot of money. But then I talked to some of the people in the class. Nobody was even thinking about it. They're like, "It's Adobe.、Mm. You, th- you really think we're gonna get that scholarship? Like we have no chance." Turns out nobody was applying for that scholarship. They didn't do a good job、yeah. of marketing it. I was the one who applied. I got、right. it. My work was like, so, it was okay. It was,、yeah. I'm not like I'm not.、Uh, no blowing. competition. Yeah. Yeah, but there was no competition, so I just went ahead and got it. And it's like sometimes there's things in this world that are just there for you to take. You just have to have the audacity to reach out and and grab them. Okay, so you went to the University of Pennsylvania,、uh, which is also very cool. I love talking to entrepreneurs that have been outside of India, that have traveled.、I'm、assuming you had some American friends while you're there, people from other countries as well, because it's University of Pennsylvania.、Yeah. Everybody wants to go.、Um, so, tell me about this hackathon that I think you and your friend was it Casey set up? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so were you? Were you?、Uh, weren't you? I think I remember hearing that you had like sort of. Taken that idea from Princeton, and did you? Yeah, so I'll tell you the story. Okay, sure. So it's actually quite interesting.、Um, there was this again this email newsletter, and it said that hey, you know, there's a startup weekend happening at Princeton, right? That this sounds cool, right? I mean, it said Princeton. You know, it'll be a nice holiday. I'll love to see the campus as well. It was like two hours away from where Penn was, and、uh, so I asked one of my friends. I was like, dude,、um, I mean, there's a startup weekend. Essentially, it's 48 hours of a hackathon. We'll go set up an idea. Build a team, you know, build that product, and、uh, then we'll see what happens. If we win, we win. But we'll just go. Worst comes to worst, we would have seen Princeton, right? It's a beautiful campus, right? It's this old Victorian campus.、Um, so my friend is like, okay, let's let's do it, right? So we took a bus to Princeton. We reached there, and、um, that was that was it, right? We just wanted to see Princeton. And how、uh, far away is Princeton from?、Uh, like a couple of hours. Okay. Just like a, of you took a Greyhound or yeah, something. Yeah, we took a Greyhound.、Okay. Yeah. Yeah, mega bus. Oh, okay. <laughs> so we we took, we we reached Princeton, and there、uh, we understood the format of the competition. The format was that hey, listen, you have to first pitch your idea to the entire audience, and then you have to build your team,、um, and then for forty eight hours you have to hack your product, and then at the end of the forty eight hours you have to present and pitch to the investors or the judges. And we said, fun. Okay, let's do this. So we had an idea.、Uh, we weren't going to do many, many details. It was a fun idea, you know. So actually, let's go into some details. Uh, it was basically a, a news product, which would give you personalized news. So, for example, let's say something happens in Japan, right? Like there's a nuclear attack that happens on Japan, right? I don't know. Or there's a nuclear leak. Let's be less political. Gosh,、uh, <laughs> <laughs> this has happened. <laughs> so, let's say there's some、uh, there's an earthquake in Japan, right? It's not relevant to you in any way. But what this product would do is would tell you exactly which of your friends, associates, and acquaintances will be most affected by that,、oh. uh, depending on you know who was in Japan, you know who had maybe done a Foursquare check-in or maybe had put up a、uh, Facebook update from Japan, whatever. Right. So it'll make news very contextual. So we built this product out, built a team of seven eight people.、Uh, we had no intention of winning、uh, because there were people who were much older than us. They were MBA students and they were PhD students and they were all these. It's Princeton. Like, it's Princeton, yeah. At the end of the day,、um, and so we had no. In- Like we didn't even try to win, right? We just tried to have fun. We tried to, so we built a team of five six folks.、Uh, you know, we worked over the overnight,、um, and、um, and then we hacked out this product, and then we went and presented. And it just so happened that at the end of the presentation, when the, they were announcing the results,、um, I you know they 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 start with like rank three, like rank two, and then they go to rank one, right? Like you know, third prize, second prize, first prize, and then. The the people who got the third prize were people who I did not expect to even win, right? Or like even come top ten. I was like, oh, interesting. Like, 
Maybe we still, maybe we actually have a chance. And then second was someone that was predictable. And then there's a third, they said nuisance. And we're like, wait, what? Like, like we didn't believe it for some time. And, and so we all went to sort of accept that prize. And then there was like this confusion on my face. And the judge who was giving us a prize, like, why are you so confused? Why do you look so confused? You actually won. That's... So I think that victory really gave me a lot of confidence that, hey, listen, like, you know, we're not less than anybody else or like these Princeton folks or, or these PhD folks, our idea actually had some worth or some um, merit to it. And, and our execution wasn't all that bad. And our presentation at the end of the day sort of brought it all together. So that confidence that it gave me was, was transformational, I think. Because I think that's what validated the entrepreneur in me. Okay, you can do this, right? Um, and thereafter, I sat out of the on-campus recruitment cycle. So at Penn, we have these like Google and Facebook and Bain and BCG and McKinsey all coming and recruiting. But I decided not to sit because I was so sure of then continuing working on my startup harder. Wow. Um, so you took Nuisance as a as a startup to actually build out as a founder? Yeah. I was wow. like, might as well. I mean, like we, these three judges feel that it's a good idea. I have a team already. Let's just build it out. Wow. Right? So we started building it out. A te- sorry, a team, like a group of friends that you... So or was the people who attended the hackathon? Hackathon, yeah. So you build a team amongst the people who are at the hackathon. Got it. Just new people that you've never met. Never met before. Wow. Never met before. So most of them, I mean, they, they left the team, obviously, because, I mean, it was a weekend thing for them, right? Uh, but a couple of them, you know, stuck by. Uh, but then even, like, over a couple of years, as we worked on that idea, uh, we realized that this idea is actually not going anywhere because it's very hard to monetize, it's very hard to scale. There are these issues, that issue is dependency on Foursquare, dependency on Facebook, dependency on Twitter. They change their algorithms every day. We said, okay, forget about it. But that insight into all of those things was amazing. Sure. Right, you learned, I learned so much about that entire ecosystem, APIs, how to work with APIs because we had to call all those APIs. Um, you know, I forced myself to learn Photoshop. I forced myself to learn Marvel at that time. All these apps to sort of, you know, build the uh, initial prototypes, etc. So all in all, a great experience. It ended up completely as a failed startup, but a great experience nonetheless. Wow. Um, and so thereafter, I realized the power of hackathons. And then I started another hackathon at my own school at Penn called okay. Hack the Change um, with Casey, which is, I think, probably Sure, sure, sure. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Okay. You, you got to go, right? What's the time? Um, yeah, we have like 10 minutes. Okay. I'm to take one more thing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay, so then I just wrapped up by saying we'll get to that. How much time do we have on the camera? Literally, we just said Casey and Casey message. <laughs> it's crazy. He's not messaged me in years. <laughs> what? That's crazy. It's just, like, I'm not even getting Casey Rosenbrand sent you a message. That's crazy. crazy. What are the odds? Can we uh, have more than 10 minutes? Huh, okay. Uh, so now I just said, um, we'll get to that. But before we get to that, I want to, I want to understand, it's a really important experience for you, a failed startup, right? And I think people skim over that. They don't like to talk about their failures. They just want to move on. You want to talk about master's union. You want to talk about more recent things. But I, you know, so many people who are watching this video right now are either dreaming of starting up, meaning they're like on the cusp, or they're currently like actually ideating. They're in the, that, that sort of ideation seed stage, whatever stage you want to call it, right? Where they're, they're kind of like trying to find a co-founder or they're trying to maybe talk to investors, like pitching some sort of prototype or MVP. Um, that must have been a really difficult thing for you to let go of right? Nuisance or not really? Were you kind of like, oh, it's not working out. That's fine. I'll just start something else. Uh, I mean, I think I had been working on it for like over a year. 
So there is a certain commitment. Yeah, yeah. There's a certain commitment you have, right? However, as soon as I realized the inherent flaws in the business, it became very easy to let go of it, right? I was like, I'm not married to this. I'm 21, or 19 at the time, or whatever, 20. I was like, you know, I can definitely take the best of my learnings uh, and create something new, right? Uh, so, so that's what happened. I mean, I didn't get married to it. Uh, it was very easy to let go. It wasn't that hard. I mean, in hindsight, I'm thinking whether like I really loved that idea enough or not. I mean, but but I think I was flexible enough to let go of it. I think I think it's easier. No. Wow. Don't, don't you? I don't know. I I get, sometimes I think about startups and businesses as the same way I look at like relationships. Mm. And I feel like a lot of the time, the first startup that somebody creates is almost like their first love, their first girlfriend or whatever. It's very hard to let, get let go of. It's like mm. this very like, you think you're gonna get married and have kids and live happily ever after. Uh, but maybe coming from a business background, you, you know, your family, you'd seen your dad build multiple things, your grandfather as well. Maybe you were kind of like, you just didn't have that uh, sort of puppy dog love for your first startup. You were like, no, I can start another thing later on. It's fine. I think I had puppy dog love for starting up, period. Ah, uh, okay. Right. You weren't ready to let go of that. I wasn't ready to let go of starting up. I had some very good companies offering me jobs, right? I mean, all of that was there. But I, I, I did not let go of starting up. I let go of that idea. And I knew that idea was going nowhere. Got it. Does that make sense? No, no it does yeah, make sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you have something that you were like ready to jump into next? Or it was kind of like, I'll just wait and see. No, again, I mean, like, you know, college is hard, right? Uh, I mean, maybe, you know, exams or trials started and then like, you know, we the, the focus completely shifted and then you also want to score, you know, you have all these expectations from home that you'll do well in college. Or, so I think um, it was like a zigzag sort of a, time right like entrepreneurial not so entrepreneurial okay some you have some time become entrepreneurial and then you have exams and then you let go of it sure so you sort of uh, you know zigzag a little bit uh, but then uh, another thing happened which was that I, I met uh, I was part of this um, uh, class and in that class um, we used to have local companies come in and give us problem statements that we would have to solve for right the class was called engineering entrepreneurship or something, right? Oh. Um, so solving problems through engineering, essentially. And so one of the local companies that came was this company called Philadelphia Inquirer, which is a local newspaper in Philadelphia, one of the oldest ones. And they said, hey, listen, you know, we have this website, we run it on WordPress. I don't know, <laughs> exactly. So they, they run it on WordPress and then they wanted to run some polls on the website because elections were coming up. Um, and they're like, you know, we want to do these like Obama versus at that time Romney, I think, right, these polls. And uh, right now we have to code these polls ourselves, right? And can someone in the class help us create a system where we don't have to code these polls every time? And so Randy and I, Randy is one of my friends from, from that same class, now my business partner. Uh, we decided to build out that small widget or that small product for Philadelphia Inquirer as a project. And we sent it to them over email and we said, hey, listen, this is done. And they replied back saying that, hey, listen, here's like a few thousand dollars. Um, can you like make it a little bit more secure? Right, like because there was no security feature that we had built into it. And we said, okay, thanks for the cash, by the way. But so, you know, we made a few changes and we sent it back to them. And then they sent us another like check of like a few thousand dollars. And they said, you know, can you make these other improvements? And what we realized was that we were actually building a full end-to-end -end product for them. Which, by the way, we could have gone and sold to anybody else as well. So then we went next to New York Times. 
and we just like knocked on John Pogue's like office, and then we said, "Hey, listen." Oh, you literally showed up at the office and just yeah. It was in New York. We were interning there with some company, um, so we just like went to I think it was 48th and 11th, like the the 48th, 48th Street, 11th Avenue. Um, went up to them and said, "Hey, can we get a meeting with John Pogue?" They said, "Sure, he's upstairs. You know, 11th floor. Go." We went to the 11th floor. Said, "Hey, listen. You know, we built this thing. Would you be interested in trying it out?" He's like, "I was looking for something exactly like this." Wow. And we got a like like a hundred thousand dollar check from. I mean, it took some two three months after that, but essentially we closed New York Times as a client, and they're like, "Hey, listen, we have hit a gold mine. Now you know, let's just finish college and like let's go full deep into it." None of both of us were not ready to drop out. Right. So we said we'll, we'll do this on the side, and um, anyway, so we decided to sort of jump into building this product full time, and then we were fully focused on it wow. for the next twelve years. Oh my gosh! We'll get to that once you have your meeting. I don't want to keep you no. longer. Perfect. I'll just Important run. Politician. Uh, I'll, I'll just run. Sure, sure. Perfect. All right. See you back here Lunch. in thirty, forty-five minutes. Lunch for you. I'll talk to the team. Don't worry. You got, you got to run. No. Lunch. We're back in business. Yeah. All right. So we left off. Okay. Okay. So where we left off before we took a little break was you were starting to tell me about Outgrow or the beginnings of Outgrow. I don't even know. Was it called Outgrow at that time? Mm -hmm. No. It was just an idea that came out of one of your assignments, class projects, class projects exactly, which is very, I mean, like very organic. You know, way of starting a company, starting a startup. Yeah. Um, you know, you did this assignment. At what point did you kind of start to realize that this is actually turning into something more than just something that I'm doing in school, but it's actually like a potential business? So I think it was when we got our first client, uh, who was actually the person who gave us the project in the first place. But then later, when we realized that this we can actually sell to New York Times or to Boston Globe or to Chicago Tribune or to Wall Street Journal or to Playboy magazine, right? That's when we were like, hey, you know, these first few clients have found us, uh, or you know, and they've used the product and they get value out of it. Let's figure out how to price it in a way that you know they can also afford it, and we can also make some money, right? And that's when we sort of you know stumbled upon this SaaS style pricing, you know, that thirty dollars a month, sixty dollars a month. So we created these three packages, like a startup package and a you know mid-tier enterprise package and a full large enterprise package. So it was started off thirty dollars per month. It went up to like hundred thousand dollars a month, uh, depending on you know what services you were using. Seriously, hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah, our largest customer uh, pays people, us like hundred thousand a month. They yeah. were willing to pay that much. Their business depends on it. Wow, that's incredible. And so, was this uh, this product? Was it, uh, or I guess it was a suite of products, um, right? Yeah, essentially. Yes. Yeah, was it was like automated? You had built it and then you just sent it out into the world, or were you guys actually was this scalable, or were you guys? No. So in the beginning, I mean, it's over ten years, right? Yeah. So okay, the first sure. couple of years was you know just one aspect of the product was live, and the rest was a dream, right? Uh, but we started with the part of the product that was most required or was most critical to the customers, which was like a polling, which like a, a drag and drop. Poll creator. Okay. Right. So today we have Google Forms, etc. But think of if you're a large organization and you want to create your own branded forms, um, you know, or polls, or assessments, or graders, or quizzes, or calculators, any of those things. Um, then essentially you can drag and drop that entire system, right? So over time we built more templates. Over time we built more integrations. Over time we built more security features. Uh, 
But you know, one thing always led to another. So one customer asked us for something, so we built that feature out. Another customer asked us for something, we built that feature out. But it took us a good year, year and a half before we realized that, hey, listen, this is now a business. Right? Yeah. Till then it was just a class project, which was doing well. Right? Sure. I think we got an A minus in that class. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, it was very organic. It wasn't planned. We didn't think that we'll become co-founders. We didn't do any co-founder dating as such. Um, we didn't like sit down and look at problem statements out in the world and like come up with a solution or etc. The solution was basically made by the customers themselves. Wow. They would come back to us and say, okay, can you add this feature? Can you add this integration? Right. Um, and so over time, the first four years, we just kept sort of solving problems that our customers threw at us. And what we realized by the end of three, four years was that the product had become like a melange of like this soup that does not taste good at all. Oh, okay. So then we had to like take a step back and say, hey, listen, now we're a serious company, right? We have a team that we have to make sure that, you know, we pay at the end of every month, all of that. So we got to get serious now. So we took a step back, understood the market, and then rebuilt the product from scratch to make sure that it sustains the test of time. Right, okay. So that's how sort of Outgrow matured to the next stage. And then, then we went all out marketing. Got it. Right. Uh, but one interesting thing was that we never fundraised. Oh, okay. So most startups feel the need to fundraise, right? Early on in their lives. Because we were so organic and because our customers were sort of throwing problem statements and, you know, invoices at us, essentially. Right, it was, they were willing to pay for they it. They were willing to pay for it. We never had to fundraise. So till today, the founders, that's me and Randy, own 100% of the company. Wow. We've never taken any outside funding because our customers essentially funded us. Mm. And I feel like that's a long lost art of running your business. And I keep, sorry, I keep coming back to your, like, your... Very sorry. You can stay, stay comfortable. It'll take two seconds. We just need to switch out the battery. Okay. Fundraising. Yeah. Yeah. So I keep, I keep coming back to this, talking about your uh, sort of lineage, your father, your grandfather, but I think that is the way of building a business, or it used to be the common popular way of building a business, a sustainable, scalable business. Uh, well, scalability, I guess, wasn't always, like with your grandfather, it wasn't necessarily scalable, the sweet, sweet shop. Um, but I feel like that's something, like you said, that we're kind of a forgotten art, right? Where everybody's just running out. They, they don't even have a, some people don't even have a prototype or like an MVP. I mean, yeah. now we're in a bit of a funding winter, right? So now the investors have wised up and they're like, no, no, no you got to show me some runs on the board before I'm willing to throw money at you. But, you know, 2021, I mean, just come with, come, come with an idea yeah. and, and I'll give you some money, yeah. right? Uh, and then give me a bunch of equity. You lose ownership in your company. And I don't know. Uh, I think there's this sort of, uh, because of this funding winter, I feel like there's a paradigm shift that's happening with, entrepreneurs, startups, and people on the outside watching, right? Uh, these, you know, eventually when the company IPOs, like retail investors who are like, I don't like the way this is going. I don't like the fact that these startups are just uh, being overvalued and they're giving away so much ownership in their company to these investors. Some of them are foreign investors, right? So I do think that um, the way that you, that you approached Outgrow uh, I mean, it wasn't probably wasn't intentional. It was just yeah. a byproduct of yeah. the fact that people were willing to throw money at you. But uh, so what was it like? Was it profitable then? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the thing is that when is a company not profitable? A company is not profitable when it spends a lot on marketing. Right. That's usually the major expense that causes you to burn cash. Right. Um, and that's the case with all the Indian startups over the last couple of years. Right. Uh, 
if your acquisition channel is word of mouth, if your acquisition channel is genuinely the uniqueness of your product and not just you giving discounts, right? In an otherwise crowded market, you will be profitable, right? Because even if you look at, for example, Zomato, right? On a unit economics level, they are actually profitable, but it's just that as a company, they're not profitable. Similar, I think it's true for uh, various other companies, on Academy, etc. So, you know, essentially, if you get that CAC game right, um, which if you have a good product and good uh, first initial early adopters who are ready to sort of, you know, give the reference for you, I don't think you will be unprofitable. Right. Like, I, I fail to see sometimes that, I, like, I, like, what are these guys spending money on? Why are they not profitable? What is like this $600 million burn? Like, why? Where is that money going? And so on. Number two, the other thing is that when you're uh, acquiring customers, right? Google and Facebook is the easiest way to acquire customers, right? You can just throw more money at Google, you'll get more customers. More money at Facebook, more customers. Not in a sustainable way though. But when you have money, it spoils you, right? It, it doesn't force you to think about other cheaper acquisition channels. Like, this is working, why would I sort of change, right? So I think funding and easy funding makes founders lazy. And they stop experimenting with you know, unique acquisition channels. They yeah. just rely or over rely on Google and Facebook and that's when they become unsustainable. And I think it gives them a false sense of, of uh, maybe security isn't the right word. Success. But success, right? Like, oh, we've got so many customers coming in. They don't know if that's a result of their heavy spend in marketing or if that's actually people who are genuinely excited about their product until the investors stop pouring money into the startup and then suddenly they're like, oh, okay, it was a lot, of, a lot to do with the marketing, not so much about the product. Now we need to quickly scramble and fix the product up. But it seems like you were basically listening to your customers as things went, as you started to improve, you're getting more and more revenue from these customers because the value that you're adding is increasing day by day. I mean, so we built the company over 10 years. Had we had funding and we were serious about it and we were not lazy with it, maybe we would have been able to do that in four or five years. I would give you that, that I think fundraising can sort of accelerate the growth, right? But it's up to the founder to be responsible as to how that growth comes. Um, but definitely, I mean, I think nothing wrong with fundraising, but I think you have to be, you have to be, uh, what's the word, responsible. Yeah, you have to use it in, in the right way. So, um, th by the way, that company is still in existence, still oh, yeah, around? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, Randy and I ran that company for 10 years together. Now Randy runs it full time. Uh, it's still based in the US. Uh, are you guys still, you guys are the only owners? Yeah, the only owners. Um, and uh, it's, been, it's been a great experience. I mean, like, it's a, in, in Hindi, we call it dhanda. I don't know if you've come across that term yet. I haven't. Dhanda is pure raw business. Wow. Right, without these uh, embellishments of fundraising and, you know, burn and all of that. Dhanda means, like, profit and loss, right? I feel like the Mittal family is a dhanda family. India, India is a dhanda country. Mm. Like Ambani, Adani, etc. All these companies, they are all scaled up companies. Those are, yeah, the traditional, you know, big companies. But when we talk about startups, that's a, that's a different thing, right? I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I challenge you a little bit there. Right? I think there are plenty of tech companies that did not fundraise and have scaled up. I mean, Freshworks, Soho, Nokri. I mean, these are not companies that raised funds early on in their lives. Yeah. And they became profitable and then they raised maybe a little bit of money or went public mm -hmm. uh, to, to raise more funds. But... Uh, I think you'll find more successful examples of bootstrap companies in India than successful examples of 
non bootstrap companies in your zerodha i mean you talk about zerodha so much on your channel yeah 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 and and for some reason i'm getting this like parallel between your story have you, have you met the balav natani no. uh, founder of fusion charts so it's it's a very like there's a, there's a lot of parallels there like he was a young guy mm-hmm. he just built this thing and he you know he was like in his bedroom or whatever like a little different from yours you're at university and all but then uh, you know he just started i think he he built it for some guy like it was like a freelance project and then the guy really loved it mm-hmm. and so then he's like oh i wonder if i can like sell this to other people right and now now the company i think he's he's now sold it um but they had like fortune 500 companies that were basically buying course, their yeah, yeah the product is very useful yeah and so simple i mean it's just charts you know it's graphs and charts everybody and needs it <laughs> exactly and the way that he, the execution was just flawless so sound i mean you know uh, i don't really uh, i i'm still a little bit fuzzy on what the product actually was i know first we start we started talking about polling and then it sounds like you started to build out some more products and more features like what what did that basically so what outgrow essentially is today is an interactive content platform So when you go on to a publishing website let's say you go on to New York Times or Wall Street Journal or your college newspaper's website right um uh, even Tesla is a publishing company in a sense Tesla has its own blog and you know has its own content and then every company writes content there are two forms of content one is you know your blogs and your ebooks and your white papers right that's static content right um uh, you have to read it you have to consume it it doesn't talk back to you the second kind of content is interactive content where you input something and you get some sort of an output right so a calculator so for example if you go into tesla's website right now there's a calculator that says calculate how much you will save if you own a tesla wow that's powerful right it asks you some questions about your you know driving habits etc and then then before showing you the exact dollar amount that you'll save it'll ask you for your email address ah interesting right So that conversion is extremely high because you've already inputted that data you're really excited about that result so you're going to give that email input right so that's much better than a landing page which is saying contact me or which is saying hey you know like download this ebook or some you know so essentially it creates content that's interactive and interactive content converts better so it saves you a lot of google facebook dollars yeah. when you're advertising mm-hmm. so that's essentially outgrow got it I've 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 heard the or actually I read this analogy that you used which was and I loved it um this comparison between trying to pick a girl up at the bar yeah right with an with an I mean advertisements are like that right like hey baby come over here and buy my product and it's yeah. like leave me alone like this yeah. is a sleazy weird guy right you just Correct. and we're so we get hit by so many ads and so many of these like, like you said white paper ebook like it's just too much so it's oversaturated but uh actually you know going on a date and showing them that you care you're listening and you're offering something right maybe you pay for dinner doesn't need to be that way she can also pay for dinner but you know the i feel like the analogy there really works well because that's essentially what you guys are doing or you're allowing your customers, customers. to do you know with their prospective customers is look and tesla is a good example right look here's something valuable you're learning something along the way you're interacting right which is that's how our brains work right we're not just like consumers of you know ads and content like and we've all stopped doing that we've put these like blinders on ourselves now so that we don't see the ads and we just block them out mm-hmm. so yeah i think uh it makes a lot of sense why the business took off the way that it did yeah in fact um you know for the first 5 years our like punchline was don't sell just be nice right makes sense I mean like uh, we had this one client it was a shingle company they used to make roofs shingle roofs right 
and you know they came and told us can we build a calculator on your platform they're like wait why does a shingle company need a calculator right because till then you're only working with publishing companies and they said you know we want to create a shingle roof cost calculator so like was the first customer our first questions first question our customers ask is how much will reshingling my roof cost me and if i can just create that calculator i can get leads at a much lower value much lower cost and much higher traction than i would otherwise on google facebook where i just asked people to give me a call or send me a whatsapp message or one of those right exactly this cost calculator would be so he's in fact one of our largest customers today it's a big shingle company in the us oh wow um, and they have a cost calculator which i'm guessing a lot of your you know your your audience in the us would have seen mm-hmm. in fact so there was polls calculators assessments assessments uh, assessments could be like um so like for example one card. of our clients is salesforce okay right and salesforce has this uh sales process maturity assessment calculator so basically when salesforce goes to microsoft to sell its product salesforce would tell microsoft hey listen how's your current sales process right we don't think it's right because it has these 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 gaps so this assessment would identify those gaps ah oh, okay right and then microsoft will be like oh yeah my sales maturity index is only 5 on 10 right and then salesforce would be like hey listen yes it's only 5 on 10 here's our product which will make it 9 on 10 Right. So that's an assessment. So it's used in B two B sales essentially. Mm. Does that make sense? No, it does. It does. Yeah. yeah. So those are assessments, um, polls, of course, etc. Um, another context. Tell me um, what was the kind of content? So New York Times, right? Are the top ten New York Times most read pieces, content pieces? What percentage do you think are calculators? Wait, they they make. Okay, uh, I, I have no, I have no idea. I feel like this is a trick question, yes. <laughs> and you're setting me up for like five out of five or something. No, so it's it's interesting. So New York Times writes maybe like a hundred articles a day. I don't know, just throwing it out there, and maybe they make one calculator a month. Okay. Right. Still, New York Times most visited pieces out of top ten, three are quizzes or calculators. Wow. Yeah. So those three are. There's a buy versus rent calculator okay. for New York Times audience in New York, right? So should I buy a house or should I rent a house? So we'll talk about like you know what your profile is and you know what your earning profile is, etc., and tell you exactly whether you should buy or rent. There's another one which is calculate your risk of catching Zika. This is back in Zika time. Oh. So New York Times released this calculator, calculate your risk of catching Zika. So easy. It right? makes sense, right? right? It makes sense. It's custom built for the reader. For the reader, rather than giving you, blasting you with a bunch of information in a written article. Here's a calculator. You can figure it out for yourself. And then there was a, an op-ed calculator where um, what they created was this thing where you could answer certain questions, and New York Times calculator would predict exactly where in the U.S. you're from, right? So the question would be like, how do you say, uh, quote unquote, how do you address two or more people, right? and then you could say you all and then there would be like texas and like this is a very simple part but like it had like these 15 questions it's like a filter exactly so these 15 questions if you answer it'll tell you exactly where in the us you're from and it was like 99% correct it's still you can use it right and right? people were sharing it with each other saying look at this thing other. it's so cool yeah, so cool and uh, it was part of a larger op-ed which was about diversity in the us and linguistics etc but um, so that's interactive content that's what outgrow does fascinating But okay, so you said one out of a hundred. Why? I mean, this sounds like it's super successful for them. Why aren't they doing it more? Um, it's harder to sort of spend time building these. Sure. It's not as easy. Um, and also, like 
they're also maturing. I think I'm sure it was like one out of five hundred a couple of years ago. Yeah. Right. So that that is increasing, but uh, but people will take some time to to understand the power of interactive content. It's new. It's still early in its journey. Mm-hmm. Got it. Ten years building, outgrow, and then uh, what was the point where you? I mean, you you, w- you would have learned so much along the way, right? About leadership, about building a startup, uh, not about fundraising. <laughs> yeah, a lot of time saved, yeah. Because so many founders spend all of their time out there Like the two co-founders, one is like the stakeholder management founder and one is the ops founder. Yeah, one of them is just on a plane constantly. So you saved yourself a bunch of time. Um, what was the point where you kind of started to realize that maybe it's time for me to start something else? So uh, outgrow is a niche, right? Uh, we don't have too many customers, right? We have limited set of customers and we don't intend to have more, right? Because we have to service them well. So at a point, um, you know, two things happened in around just before COVID, two things happened. One was that Outgrow as a product uh, was reaching maturity, right? There was only so much that I as a product person could bring to it, right? Um, and Randy, who runs uh, the, the business side of things, the sales and the marketing side of things, his job was now more important. Uh, so essentially, we discussed that you know he will take over the company, uh, and at the same time, I wanted to move back to India. Ah, okay. Uh, because I had been out of India for a while, and I never intended to leave India. Uh, and I felt that with all the knowledge that I had gained in the U.S., working on Outgrow from Penn, uh, I thought the dividend that I'll be able to extract out of that in India would be a lot more than it would be in New York, mm-hmm. right? Um, also, I wanted to work in education in India because my parents had been working in education in India and I saw how fulfilling it was for them to be in education, right? Um, so I thought that education is something that has a couple of things going for it. First, it has great gross margins, right? So you don't have to rely on fundraising. So that's the kind of business that I want to run where I don't have to rely on fundraising. Um, second, that it has a lot of impact, right? People are straight away touched, um, and thirdly, uh, you don't have to haggle with the customer. There are only a few things in life that people save for, right? Buying a home, right? Education, um, uh, maybe a car, um, but that's about it, right? So when people have already made up their mind that they have to spend on education, um, you know, it's easier to sort of uh, to close that deal, right? Um, so. Have, did you when you went to college? I know you dropped out. Or when you went to college, did you negotiate your fees? No, never. Right? Nobody does. Yeah. Nobody does, right? So I thought that with all those things going for it, uh, education would be like the right space for me to enter. Uh, but most importantly, it was also that India needed good institutions, right? Uh, India is a country of a billion people, but only seven hundred universities, hmm. right? So I thought there was massive, massive scope in creating something very beautiful in education, uh, something that you know propels India to the top of sort of these, you know, rankings. Um, currently, as it stands, hardly any Indian institutions are in the top 100 of, of either business schools or engineering schools. Or, or I, I've, no, I've noticed that, yeah. I've always wondered that too, because you hear all about the Ivy Leagues and it's like... Oxford, Cambridge, yeah, you know, universities too. in Germany, etc. None in India. Yeah. I mean, and, and we think that we have IITs and IIMs and those are great, and they are. But on a global platform, they're also nowhere. Uh, and I thought that maybe I could solve that problem. Sure. Sorry, he was, you've been giving me the signal. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's just keep this going though. 
Red light is there. Okay. Yeah. I'm a little nervous. <laughs> okay. Good. Uh, audio is fine too. Yeah? yeah. Okay. Before we get into Masters Union, coming back to India, I wanted to know. You had made you'd made up your mind, you know, outgrow, it's time for you to move on, start something new. Um, why did you decide, I know you said that you wanted to get back to India and you had also identified this this problem. Was there any like, was there any hesitation there? Like, should I start a company in the United States or go back to India? Like, I feel like a lot of people idolize this life of, you know, moving to the United States as a startup founder be in New York, right? Yeah. The Big Apple, <laughs> you know, a lot of people would would decide or opt to stay in the United States once they've and you've spent ten years, right? You've built up probably yeah. a group of friends, you know, you you have your favorite Network. cafe and restaurant. Like your your life is there, right? Um, what was the thought process there coming back to India, or was it like a non decision? You're like, this is just what has to. No, I think it's a very utilitarian decision, right? I I mean, I I remember like you know making an exile and comparing the two option opportunities. The thing is that in India. Uh, other than the fact that I had my parents here, the opportunities in India are boundless, right? In the US, first of all, the market is of 300 million. In India, it's one point something billion, right? So first of all, the market is much larger. Number two, the market is very underpenetrated, right? For every, you know, one company in India, there are 10 in the US, right? So when you enter a market in the US, you're already competing with, with a bunch of folks. In India, when you enter into a market, more often than not, you're competing with fewer folks. And... By virtue of my experience in the US, I thought I would have a natural advantage over them. Uh, which, by the way, turned out to be wrong in some cases because they knew the market in India a lot better than I did. But still, I thought that I had some maybe, you know, technical dividend or maybe I had some, you know, uh, insights that might be helpful in India. So, you know, in that sense, I realized that, you know, to build a business in India would be a lot simpler than the US. Also, in the US, a human resource is very expensive, right? In India, as compared to your revenue um, or your overall costs, the human resource cost is actually slightly lesser. Um, so all those factors, I realized that if I have to start a company, I might as well do it in India. Um, and also education is a much bigger problem in India than it is in the US. Very true. It's, it's still a problem in the US, by the way. Of course. A big one. But in India, it's, 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 it's a lot more grave. So I, I thought you know, India would be the right place. All right. So you made up your mind, packed your bags, bought your tickets. Or did you already start planning the, the company while you were in the US? Or was it like, feet on the soil, I'm here in India, now let's start? Um, I forget actually. I think it was a little bit of both, right? I knew that I had to do something in education, but then I came back and then like I spent two months having conversations with stakeholders, talking to students, talking to my market, dad. Market research. Market research. Um, and then after doing all of that, I realized that, hey, listen, okay, I've made a lot of mistakes in life. I don't want to repeat any of those, right? Um, so one of the mistakes that I had um, made was, you know, spending too much time thinking and building the product before going to market, right? So here I thought, you know, I'm going to go to market first, right? And then build the product around sort of the problems that I see. Um, so lots of those learnings I utilized in, in, in you know, in this chapter two. Um, and then, uh, so I think it was like a mix of, of it. So you know, I knew which industry I wanted to get into, but to figure out exactly what I wanted to do, maybe a couple of months of market research. I think we, we kind of skimmed over that with Outgrow, but I think what you're hinting at with the problems that you, or the mistakes you made in the past, was that you had kind of gotten this early validation 
from those customers. And so you like built out the product really quickly, yeah. but then it was really messy and sloppy and you, and you realized that like a lot of this stuff is not even adding value and nobody even wants to use these features. And yeah. so was that kind of what happened with Outgrow? Yeah, I mean, so Outgrow was an unplanned product and that's what it looked like at the end of five years. So for the next leg of our journey, we had to really sort of uncook that entire meal and cook it again right. uh, in a way that made sense. Um, so with Masters Union. So with Masters Union, I want to make sure I don't make that same mistake and that I know enough about the market beforehand that I plan my product and I plan my approach in a strategic way, right? Not just sort of throw darts um, at the wall. So what did that, what did that like consist of uh, in, in, you know, the real world? You first do a little bit of market research, you're talking to people, then what, you start building or, or I mean? So I, I planned it like, you know, so Masters Union is a planned project, right? I knew on day zero exactly how much money you would have in the bank in year three, in year four, in year five, right? So Masters Union was a very well thought out business plan and playbook and execution plan. And we have stuck to it, right? So I sat down, spent a couple of months just sort of making sure that, you know, okay, in first year, we're going to target these many students. In year two, we're going to target these many students. In tier three, because of the kind of results you would have given in year one, we, would, we can target these many students. This is how much you would spend in marketing. I knew exactly how much, you know, and the the... the keyword MBA costs, right, on Google. So I budgeted for that. I knew exactly what kind of conversion rates I would have, right? Because of all the 10 years of work that we had put in, we knew exactly, you know, what these economics and uh, you know, these funnels look like. So we planned for all of that. And so when we sort of built the car, essentially, on paper, and then when we sort of wanted to manufacture it, build the campus, we just had to execute the playbook that we had already planned out. Got it. Right? So, um, you know, on day one, we, you know, launched our website, um, and by the way, we didn't even have a campus, right? We started building the campus once the first class had already been admitted. Oh, right. What did did that uh, did that? Sorry, what's it called? Cohort? Did yeah. That did they did their opinions inform your decisions about building the Absolutely. campus? Absolutely. Right. So, for example, first year I said that you know I'm going to target 60 students, right? Uh, and you know this would be their age category. This will be their experience. This will be all of that. But would I be able to get those kind of students? I had enough confidence that I would be able to. But it wasn't for certain, right? Now imagine if I build this beautiful campus, right? I spend money doing that. Uh, and then students actually don't end up joining for whatever reason. And by the way, it was peak COVID, right? So there was another risk there. Right. That what if like I, you know. Schools were shutting down. Schools are shutting down, right? And we actually built a master's union in the middle of pandemic. Like wave one, by the way. And uh, so there was a lot of uncertainty. So we said, all right, let's first admit the students. Let's first admit the students. Um, let's go through the admissions process. And once we know that they are coming in, then we'll start building the campus. And in fact, uh, you know, you have you require like capex, right? You need to spend money building these walls and carpets and you know tables and chairs. And so it was only when the students paid their fees. I was going to ask about that. Right. I was, I was like, how did how did you do this financially? Like, so you actually. That's like taking a, a note out of these like EV startups, right? They take pre-orders. They yeah, use the yeah. pre-order money to build, the, to build product. the product. That's what we did. I mean, it's Kickstarter, right? Essentially. Yeah. So we 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 collected the fees from our first cohort, whatever like little amount it was, and then we used that to build the campus. Wow. So we had a negative working capital problem, right? We didn't have to raise capital then. Um, and again, that was also planned out, right? In, in that sense. Um, and then we had our first cohort, then we had our second cohort, and along the time that we were having our second cohort, our first cohort was undergoing placements. Now, just for your context, in India, 
the success of an institution depends on how well are its students valued in the industry. Right. Or how much salary basically they end up getting. Had your first cohort already graduated or they were still in the... So the first cohort was when we ducted them. Um, we went, it was a, it's a year-long program, a 16-month-long program. And they started the program and then we started placements eight months into the program. Okay. So you know like how in the US also like placements or recruitment start sure. in a third year. Sure. So you're reaching out to these companies, these consultancy firms to try to get your, your people hired. Correct. So we reached out to all of these firms, you know, convinced them to come to our campus, talk to our students, all of that. Um, but alongside, we were also working very hard on our students, right? We were trying to create a program that truly stands out. Um, and I guess, you know, let's, let's take a step back at here, right? Uh, your question was, you know, how it sort of led to Master's Union. And so we have come to a stage where now Master's Union is set up and we have the students. But what is Master's Union? I guess that's a question um, sure. that... that you know, from from day one, I mean, you had started to conceptualize this, right? Probably while you were in the U.S., you came to India. You're doing your market research. What was the problem that you uh, identified? Right. Yeah, I think we should address that first. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, education for the last five, ten, fifteen thousand years has not changed. It's still the same, where a teacher uh, comes in front of a bunch of students, speaks something. The students take notes or make mental notes. And then there's an exam at the end of which it is tested whether the students understood what the teacher said. That has not changed. Maybe it has come online, some of those aspects. But still it's somebody talking to somebody and somebody sort of taking an exam, right? It's still the same. Education has not changed. And we know that to an extent this works. But it doesn't work very, very well, mm. right? And if I were to ask you a question, right? Or if I were to ask anybody a question here, uh, what is the one thing that you remember from your classroom, or from your college time, right? More often than not, people will have an answer which has nothing to do with the courses they took. It would be, you know, the experiences they had in the hostel. It would be the experiences they had running a club. It would be the experiences they had starting a company. But it would never be that, hey, you know what? I learned this concept in a classroom and that was the most rewarding experience of my college life. We forget never. all that stuff. We forget all of that. That means whatever we are learning from college, uh, or what we value at a college is everything except for the classroom. But we spend for the classroom, right? We pay money to sit in a classroom. So I think what, what we understood or, or what the hypothesis was that, hey, listen, we need to look at the education system from a different lens, right? And we have to throw out all the uh, norms and all the uh, sort of understandings of how things work today, right? We have to sort of look at it from ground up and recreated right and so we thought we'll do three things essentially three experiments the first experiment was that uh, we'll try to bring in practitioners rather than career academics to come and teach in the classroom uh, the reason for this was that in the us and in india across the world you have people who are teaching in a classroom many of who have never actually worked in the industry so you're learning computer science from somebody who might have never worked uh, in the software industry, right? And maybe what they're teaching you is useful to you, sure. But I think there is somebody else who maybe can teach those concepts better. And we always say that, you know, our graduates are not employable and all of that. This is the reason. Right? If, if the people who are teaching them are not the people who have worked in the industry, how do you expect the students to be ready for the industry? Now, if you think of a medical college, right? A medical college always has 
teachers who are actual doctors who are doing surgeries, right? So why is that not the case in computer science education or in business education or in any other field, right? So, uh, so that was the first experiment we wanted to run, which is can we bring in practitioners to come and teach? And of course, we'll have academics as well who will bring rigor to the classroom, who will bring, uh, who will make sure that the students are serious about the assignments and all of that. So you, you need sort of a, a mixture of the two. Um, so that was experiment one. Second experiment was that we said, you know what, we will not do classes traditionally. We will not have accounting 101 and management 101 and you know computer science 101. We will not have um, you know exams at the end of every class where you know there's 100 marks and then 20 marks of practical and 80 marks of theory and all of that. We just throw all of that out. What we do here in Masters Union is essentially we've divided the year into eight terms, and in each term, students run a business. Right? In term one, as it stands today, they are running an e-commerce dropshipping business. So all the students in teams of five will be running a business and competing with each other on revenue, not grades. So wait, are they literally generating revenue? They're literally generating revenue. Oh, wow. Right? So someone's, someone's running uh, sort of uh, a store where they sell, you know, uh, bed sheets, right? That are Star Wars themed, right? Someone's selling, you know, phone covers and someone's selling cutlery. Someone's, you know, so people are actually doing, remember what I use the word dhanda, mm. right? So business school teaches you nothing if not how to make money, right? So first term itself, they're building a business. They will make mistakes. They will get things wrong. But because it's no investment, there's no investment required, right. there's nothing to lose, only some things to learn. This was my experience in school where I wanted to get out there into the real world and start making mistakes and making money, right? Consequence and reward. But the thing is that it's very scary when you get out there because you don't have any safety net. You don't have a master's union or like a safety net to kind of protect you from the real world. So here there's a bit of a buffer, right? It's like we're building something, but there's also not really a huge investment. There's also not really huge consequences. Because if, if I make a mistake, it's actually a benefit because I learn from that mistake so that when I do get in the real world, I can actually, you know, perform better. Absolutely. I mean, see, in college, it's risk free, right? You've already paid the fees. You're already here. You're here to learn now. Now, you know, and, and universities and colleges were safe spaces for experimentation. That's why they existed in the first place. We made them about exams and about classes, but that's not how it's supposed to be. Um, so in term one, they build this dropshipping business. In term two, they're all going to be building a blockchain business. In term three, they're going to all be building a YouTube page and they're going to make money off of that YouTube page. In term five, they're going to build um, uh, a cloud kitchen in term six, term seven. So similarly, they're gonna create these eight businesses and they're gonna learn business by creating these eight businesses and wow. making mistakes and doing all of those things, right? We have professors and practitioners and academics who come in, but they come in and teach workshops that directly help these businesses that they run, right? So today that they are doing this, this dropshipping business, we have someone who's coming in and teaching them, you know, direct to consumer branding, how that works. We have somebody coming in teaching supply chain. We have somebody coming in teaching accounting so that you can keep accounts, right? So those things help the business directly. And there so, are practical skills that they need to learn as well, right? Absolutely. What happens in schools is that you learn something and you only get to apply it four years later when you graduate. By that time, you have forgotten, right? Uh, so here you get to apply all the stuff that you learn in courses right in the evening as you build those businesses. So that's how we're trying to create uh, a differentiated higher education institution. Right. Um, and the third experiment we wanted to run was that we wanted to mix 
business and technology, right? So most universities are like, hey, listen, here's an engineering degree and here's a business degree, right? And you choose one of the two. But that's not how the world functions, right? I mean, you run your own uh, YouTube channel. It requires tech and it requires business understanding, right? Uh, similar is the case with most of the businesses out there. So students uh, today in master's union study both business and tech, right? So that's why we don't call ourselves an MBA. We call it TBM, technology and business management. So those three experiments are around which we created Masters Union and, and um, you know, built our first cohort. A really interesting perspective on this, but let's just hit uh, pause and then re-record. Now, I don't know how exactly to frame this, but I'm listening to you describe Master's Union, what you're offering to your students. And I can't help but look back on the story that you've already told me about your life. Dune School, you're building a Yahoo store. You go to University of Pennsylvania, you're building Nuisance. And you never got a chance to really build those out fully. You never got a chance. You also didn't have mentors who are like, coaching you or teachers in this case or professors who are actually like walking with you through that journey or maybe you did I'm not sure if you ever shared this with your instructors yeah. you might have talked about it but you didn't have something like master's union where they're actually like a structured, like, way, no. a structured way exactly you never had that opportunity and so I, I I don't know if you've ever looked at it from this perspective but it really feels like you are trying to give students what you did not have while you were going through school in the traditional education Right now, you're offering an alternative education, essentially. Right, it is like a, a business school, but it's structured in a different way. Right, you guys are doing you're doing something innovative, disruptive. I don't know. Do you, have you ever that's a, like? That's a great point, actually. I never thought of it like that. It's almost it, yeah. It's like subconscious, right? Like you're just kind of you have you had that desire when you were growing up, and now you're you, you're not able to go back in time. Yeah. But you're able to offer it to other students. I, I I generally never thought of it like that, but I think. To me, that's how learning happens. You can only learn by doing. You cannot learn by sitting in a classroom. I, don't, I just don't think learning happens that way. Uh, you know, there's a class called Accounting, uh, Fundamentals of Accounting or something, right? Uh, that was the most boring class I did when I was in college, right? I, I, I used to wake up in the morning and be like, oh, accounting class. I mean, I don't know when I'll use this. Uh, I don't think I'm gonna become an accountant. I know it's important because, you know, you have to run a business, but it was just very irritating to be in that class. At Master's Union, one of our very popular courses is accounting. And the reason for that is that the professor, the way he teaches accounting, is that he tells you that the business that you're running in the evening, I'm gonna check the books for that business every day, right? And I'm gonna see exactly how clean those books are. I'm gonna see, you know, um, exactly like how close to standards the balance sheet is, what is the quality of, you know, the appropriations, all of those things, right? And he's basically built it into a game, right? And so even though accounting in an alternate universe or, or in an original, I mean, in other, in other universities is, is considered to be a boring course here because they get to apply it and learn from it in real life and see, you know, how it impacts the business, maintaining those books. I think it improves the student engagement in the class like a hundredfold. Definitely. It feels, it feels real, but it's not real. Right, he's not actually the income tax department, no. but he's pretending to be. Exactly. Whereas in a traditional education, there's not even that professor who's watching over your shoulder and trying to coach you along the way. Right, it's just exactly. like textbook exams, assignments that are just. You don't. put it so well. I mean, he's not the income tax department, but he is. That, that's so. That's perfect. 
it's great, right? I, I love it. I love this He's idea. He's going to audit the books. Yeah, just the way income. Perfect, yeah. Yeah, you guys should start offering. I mean, I know you're focusing on business school, but I think this concept of, of um, learning, it's not on the job, but it's like hands-on learning. As you said, like the nursing analogy, right? Like when you're studying nursing, you're, you're going to school like right next to the hospital, right? And the people who are teaching you are also going to go do the surgery later that day, right? So it's kind of this melding, this like hybrid approach, right? Which traditional education hasn't done. You guys are focusing on business, but I think this applies to like pretty much every Anything. type of education, Absolutely. any subject, any course. I guess you, you guys just started in May of 2020, was it? Yeah, March, a couple of a couple years ago. Yeah. yeah, not too long. You said at the beginning of the pandemic, right? Yeah. First wave. So you haven't had, I mean, I don't know if that's ever going to be the plan, but I really do think that this concept goes beyond just business um, education. and engineering and actually goes to like any subject. Like I would have loved this in photography, yeah. right? Get me out there and like, instead of the internship being the last semester, let the internship happen Throughout for the, the entire time, right? Uh, let me make money while I'm actually studying. Send me out on on, on location assignments with real clients. Right. I mean, in, 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 in colleges today, we don't incentivize mistakes. We penalize mistakes. Right. I think that defeats the entire purpose of education. Yeah. It's, it's sad that that's the case, but it's nice to know that you guys are building this. And the thing, the thing too, like that I just can't believe that I can't wrap my head around is that if, if I heard about, if I, if I hadn't met you, if I hadn't researched master's, master's union, I would have just assumed that this is like a very idealistic company and you know, your, your, your customers, your students who are coming here, they don't really, they're not going to actually get anything out of this, right? They have a great experience. They had their uh, 16 months, right? Yeah. And then they left and they actually went and did a real education so that they could get their degree and get a job. But, but the crazy thing is that when you graduate from master's union, you actually get a job and you get a salary or an offer that's higher than most, most, is it most IIMs? Most, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. That's the thing that blows my mind because that, that's like proof that this actually works. works. Right, and I guess you guys had to do a lot of coming back to building the company. You had to do a lot of work to, I'm, I'm assuming, to convince these consultancy firms and all of the companies that you send your students off to once they graduate, pass out. Yes, What's the yes. word? Yeah, never thought of it. <laughs> they're always once, you know, once in the union, always in the union. Fair enough. Um, but once they become alums, essentially, yeah. So that's the part. I mean, I know that you also, you know, uh, you have this family background in education, so it might have been. Perhaps you have the credibility of of your family, right? But at the same time, like, did you did you find it difficult to actually convince some of these firms to start onboarding your your graduates? No. So it's interesting. Um, so we we ran this program, right? And the litmus test for any education program is how well are the graduates placed, how well they are doing in the companies that they are placed in. Um, so in the first year, uh, we worked on the student CVs, right? Um, they wanted to all sit for placements and we had some companies coming in. So bringing the companies is one thing, but the students cracking the interviews of the companies totally another, right? So we can bring in the companies and yes, that was, that was hard. We had to sort of, you know, have a proper sales process. We had to reach out to them, follow up, all of that, right? But everyone does that. But once the companies came in, it's what the students did in the interviews that actually got them the jobs, right? Just by virtue of a company coming, you don't crack a job. So a lot of the students, because of this entrepreneurial mindset that we had tried to inculcate in them from day zero, and because they had started all these companies that they you know, wrote on their CVs about, 
a lot of the recruiters were like, wait, 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 wait. Hold on a second. So in the college, while you were there, you actually built a gaming company. Very cool. Tell me more about it. So in the interview, the student is actually talking about this entire product that the student has built. Now, if it's a product management job, who will the recruiter look at more favorably? Someone who's built an entire product and can actually show you users using it, can actually show you revenue that he's made from it, or somebody who's just done a product management course in some other university or college. Obviously, the one who has something to show for it. So all of our graduates did really well in the interviews because they had products that they had built, because they had PLs that they had built, because they had businesses that they had built, which they can they could show and demonstrate in the interview. And so that's the reason that you know our conversion rate for the interview was a lot higher, right? Also, students went like two steps ahead. So for example, one of our students, she really wanted to work at Netflix. Now, Netflix in India has a very small team and they don't recruit from colleges. You know, they recruit people who have work experience, who have worked, right? But she was so intent on it that she created her resume in the form of a Netflix show. So like her work experience, whatever she had done previously and her like, you know, educational experiences, she had drafted in the form of episode one, this, episode two, this, like a series, like a Netflix series. I bet they'd never seen that before. Never. And because, I mean, her entrepreneurial CV got her an interview. She was not able to crack the interview, honestly. But she got an interview. So more, most of the students had sort of been very entrepreneurial about their CVs, about their pitches to the companies. And of course, that added with all these companies that they had built over the 16 months of the program. I think that's what made them so attractive to the companies. Companies want entrepreneurial folks. Definitely. That's, that's incredible to hear. Again, drawing another parallel, I remember the story of Dipinder Goyal. He finished his college. He, he actually couldn't get a job. I, I, that's the way he said it. I'm not sure if that's, that's the reality, but the way he said it was kind of like, or at least he couldn't get a job that he wanted. You, anyone can get a job. You can go get a job at McDonald's, right? But he didn't want like some low-level job. He wanted a, a good job. And he, he couldn't find anything. I guess maybe his grades were a little bit low or something. I could be wrong about that. But then he went and started the sort of early version of Zomato, which was Foodlet, called Foodlet at the time. That failed, but he spent time building it up, right? He had a small team of people. And then when he went to go and apply for Bain & Company, that was what he showed them during the interview. He said, I, I've just spent time. I've been building this company, Foodlet. It didn't work out, but this, these are the things that I learned along the way. And they hired him because of that. Like, that's what he said. He's like, I probably would not have gotten the job at Bain if I hadn't started Foodlet. So it sounds like it's, it's sort of a similar thing, it's, right? It's exactly that. I mean, if, if I mean, I, I recruit people, right? I'm an employer here. And if somebody comes and tells me, hey, listen, I started a company, it didn't work out. But these are my learnings from it. I know three things. One is that the person is entrepreneurial. So he's going to be entrepreneurial in the job. He's, he has or she has that DNA. Second is that they've learned from their mistakes. And that's the nature that they, they carry. And third is that they're hustlers, yeah. I mean, you know, they've, they've like done something which is hard, which maybe like 90% of people won't even think of doing. So you have to give them that. And it, that's straight away like uh, a 10 on 10 on attitude. And, you know, so even if the skill is slightly less, I would still prefer that person over, over someone who has a skill but does not have the entrepreneurial bug or DNA. So basically anybody who's watching wants a job at Masters Union. Those are the three things that you need to have in order to get a job. So that's, I mean, that's how you get a job, right? Be entrepreneurial, uh, be a hustler, all these things. Now, in today's job market, and especially in the education space, right? People are getting laid off like crazy. It's not just in education though, right? It's happening all over the place. 
One thing I wanted to know, and this isn't really about startups so much as it's about uh, being, being, a, being an employee, being an entrepreneur in whatever company you join. What would you say are the, the characteristics that you need to have to actually keep a job? Once you're into the company, like, because uh, you're, you're, you're the boss here, right? So you see people who are adding a lot of value, you see people who aren't adding a lot of value. So, I mean, hopefully not the latter, but still, right? There are under... I mean, it's a spectrum. Yeah, so I wanted to know for people who are curious about that. I think like, you know, if, if you have to soul search, right? And you have to say like, am I indispensable in this company? Will this company uh, miss me if I were to leave tomorrow, right? And be honest with yourself, right? And grade it on zero to 10. 10 on 10, if the company won't function without me tomorrow. And zero on 10 that nobody even would realize, right? Um, if you're closer to 10, no one's a 10 and no one's a zero, right? Uh, let's say you're seven or eight, I don't think you'll get laid off, right? But if you're two, three, four, then you probably will, right? So that's, that's the larger sort of schematic to think about it, whether you're indispensable to the company or not. But I think what a manager or an employer or a leader is looking for in his team are a few things, right? First is, is the person trying hard enough? No one wants their people or no one expects their people to always be successful. But I expect my team to always give it a shot, give it a try. Don't say no. Don't say it's not possible, right? Just be like, have the energy to try difficult things, right? So I think that's one thing that are you like, do you bring a lot of energy with you to problems? That's one. Second, I think that if you are trustworthy, right? So if let's say like I assign some work to you and I say, hey, listen, you know, uh, can you send this to me by 7 p.m. tonight, right? I know it's hard, but I'd really appreciate it because it's important. And if you do that once, twice, thrice, you earn my trust. Uh, I think that's something that's very hard to find, right? I think it's taken me a lot of time to find people that I can trust. And once I find people I can trust, I will never let go of them, right? Like I will do whatever it takes to, to keep them close to me, right? I'd, uh, and third is people who um, question me and question their boss, right? In India especially, there's a yes man culture, right? If you say something, that becomes sort of the law of the land, right? No one will question it. So I really admire folks who would say, no Pratham, like let's rethink this. Let's, let's, I, th I think you might be wrong here, right? Um, again, those folks don't come in easy. Uh, and if I find someone like that, I really sort of keep them close. Right? So I think these are the few things that, that I think are common to all employers, all team leaders. Um, so yeah, I think these three things will, will keep you in the company. Sure. One little caveat, obviously, with that is if someone keeps correcting you and they keep being wrong, then they're not really adding as much value, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, they have to be intelligent enough to be able to take feedback themselves as well. True. Right? True. Are they taking feedback well? Uh, I think that's another thing. Uh, people sometimes become very defensive to feedback, I think. Um, so yeah, what, what, this brings to mind something. I wasn't planning to go in this direction, but getting feedback from other people and kind of um, having like a sounding board, right? Your your first proper company was with a co-founder, mm -hmm. right? And now you're a solo founder, right? I'm curious to know, um, and and I've heard like investors as well talk about. Not that you guys are like actively raising funds right now, but I've heard investors say that that's like a deal breaker for me. Like I'm not going to invest in a company with a single founder. Single founder. I will tell them to find a co-founder first. Now you have experience as an entrepreneur. So you might, you know, if let's say you went out to raise funds, you might be able to get away with 
you know, yeah. uh, some of those investors who would have said it's a deal breaker, but it won't be with you. But I'm curious to know what's what, what's your thought process on that particular topic. So I think you should always look at the founding team, not co-founders, right? So I have a very strong founding team. You do. I do, right? There are four or five folks who may not have equity in the company, but are very critical to the company. They're the ones who set it up from scratch, right? Um, so I think as an investor, uh, you know, what I also look at when I invest in companies is whether there's a strong founding team, right? Uh, not everyone has to be a co-founder. Um, so in Masters Union case, for example, we have somebody who is really strong with ops, who comes from my previous company, right? So I brought him on uh, at Masters Union. I have somebody who's really good with acquisition, right? Who was also with me at my previous company. So I asked him to come along, right? So they uh, were my founding team and I think uh, they were incredible. They were essentially co-founders to me. Got it. You said five minutes, yeah? Okay. Three minutes, okay. Let's let's just reset the cameras. Yeah, we're just we're getting close to the end. The finish line yeah, is in sight. The final lap in the swimming pool. I didn't bring that up. I know everybody talks about that on the interviews, and I'm like, yeah. you probably learned some things about entrepreneurship from swimming, but I mean, you have great. I mean, the way you look at things is, is, is very interesting. Thank you. Two things have sort of caught my mind. One is when you like sort of did the battle with my life, and then the the income tax thing. I'm gonna use that by the way. <laughs> That's cool. I'll I take credit for that. Yeah, absolutely. You have to add a disclaimer every time you say it. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay. Are we are we live? Are we recording? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Trusting you guys. It's hard to do. Gotta find people you can trust. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. The next thing I want to talk to you about. Uh, again, coming back to the current landscape in the edtech space. Uh, we're kind of realizing now in this funding winter, there's a lot of companies, and we were talking about this earlier too, there's a lot of companies that are not profitable, they're losing, they're burning through tons of money, and as soon as the investors back off, then suddenly they just crumble and they go out of business, right? Um, so is Masters Union sort of aiming towards profitability? And, and if so, like what are some of the initiatives that you guys are actually using to get to that yeah. to that point. No, it's, you know, very interesting. Uh, globally, education businesses are some of the highest gross margin businesses, right? So when all these ed tech companies were not making money, I was thoroughly confused. I was like, it does not make sense. It's impossible to lose money in education, right? Universities, schools, colleges across the world. If you look at Harvard's like balance sheet, it looks so pretty. Like if, it, if Harvard was a business, I'm sure it would be as big as like Apple, right? If it was a if it was like a listed business, you know. Right. Okay. Um, in terms of like the the price to earnings ratio, in terms of a beta margins, in terms of all of those things, right? So when these edtech companies are not making money, um, it begs the question: Why are they losing money, right? The reason a lot of edtech companies are losing money is because their core DNA is sales and not outcomes, right? When you have to sell a product. Right? And when you have to push somebody to buy that product from you, your CAC will rise. But on the other side, if you are giving outcomes to your students, they will go and market your product for you. Right? IIT today, or IM, or Harvard, or Masters Union, we do not have to advertise to tell people about the fact that we exist or that we have this program. I've never seen a Harvard ad before. You would not have, right? So 
that's what is interesting in education. If you give outcomes, if you give your graduates good jobs, if your graduates are doing well later in life, even if you're just two years old, like we are, and only have one batch pass out, you will not need to do a dollar of marketing, right? So when the ed techs have to do their marketing, that's because their product is not well-oiled enough yet, or their outcomes are not as well-defined yet, right? Some marketing is okay, some retargeting is okay when we do that. But this like all out, you know, Indian team jersey, all of that stuff, that to me is actually a problem because it's hiding the fact that your product is just not there yet. Shots it's, fired. It's compensation. Yeah, no, I mean, it's-, it's We it's won't name any names. But. Yeah, we don't, no, 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 that was actually quite clear. But, but you get my point, right? You get my drift, which is, it's very hard to be not profitable in education if you have a good product, right? And, and so in Masters Union, our marketing budget is close to zero, right? Uh, because our graduates do well, when students call them up, when they go on their LinkedIn and say, hey, listen, like this guy was in Masters Union and now he's at McKinsey. This guy is in Masters, this girl is in Masters Union and she's now at Bain, right? And they're like, oh, must be a good college. Like that's marketing done. Uh, we don't have to, you know, like advertise on the, on IPL and all of these things. Wow, that's incredible. I think that's that's going to be in this interview. That's going to be a moment that a lot of people comment on because I've seen so many people who are just frustrated and upset. Even though I mean, some of them are actual consumers of educational products in India, ed tech products, who have been feeling you know upset with what they're paying for. It's like not good enough, or it's not what they promised me, and they sold it to my parents, and now I'm regretting that I let my parents buy it for me. Right, and I think there's a lot of this sentiment going around right now. A lot of people are upset. A lot of people are. Yeah, it's like I mean, let's let's compare. Uh, there's this company called Allen. I don't know if you've heard of Allen. Yeah, are they Kota based? The Kota based, um, uh, the tuition, the JE tuition and NEET tuition company, right? Uh, they are probably some two lakh students maybe enrolled in, in Allen. Um, I think their marketing budget is minuscule, right? Because they run one ad, or maybe a couple of ads every year, where they say, hey, you know what? J rank one, my student. J rank two, my student. J rank three, my student. That's all they need to do. It's an announcement post, right? But on the other hand, some ed tech companies feel the need to like, hey, you know, our product is 40,000 rupees, but you get 20% discount, so it's 30,000 rupees, whatever, right? And not only that, but like playing with people's emotions too, right? right. It's this, you're, they're selling a bit of a fantasy, right? right. Whereas Alan, it's like, Facts. This is what we do. So Wanna it's come? obvious you should buy it. Yeah. Like, right? They're they are selling outcomes, right? Those guys are still selling products. That's the difference. Uh, otherwise, in ed tech or in education, very hard to lose money. Wow. And and this has been again, I keep reflecting on your life, but like this has been a trend, right? Where you sort of build something that almost sells itself. Right? Yeah. It's product-led marketing. Your product should market itself. If you have to market your product, you have not achieved product market fit. It's that guy in the bar trying to pick up the girl with some pickup lines. It's yeah. like, if you're, if you're like, this already says something about you right now that you're trying to do this instead of doing things the proper mm -hmm. way, which is like adding value. And then I'll, you know, go on a date with you. Let me give you another example, right? So when we have some online programs as well called master camps that we run, which are fully online. So when people apply to a master camp, they actually have to pay me an application fees. Oh. Right? With other ed techs, 
by mistake if you leave your email somewhere in their jungle they will call you 100 times hmm. so you see the difference in the approach right where if you are a institution that gives outcomes people will actually pay you to apply to your college but if you are not the kind of institution that is offering outcomes and just sort of selling a product then sort of you'll have to sell you know so that's really the difference in uh, the approaches that we have to look at right we have to go back to our original education dna mm-hmm. where if we offer outcomes people will come i i noticed there you said you kind of lumped edtech companies into this into this group but like i mean and in this offline center i don't know if you would you call yourself an education company or like i don't know if you even yeah. consider yourselves a startup but you're also moving in that edtech direction too right with uh, mass master camps yeah so i think it's not tech edtech is education technology right i mean i don't think it's i don't think like byju's is edtech byju's is education on video right or i mean for that matter any education technology company i think like the tech part is like 5% they're just hosting videos at the end of the day right there is no like hardcore ai ml there is no like hardcore nlp there's there's nothing going on there is they're just hosting videos right and even us when we are doing our online programs we are also just hosting videos at the end of the day right um so i think when we use the word edtech we use it very loosely and i think we give ourselves way too much credit for being a tech company or a tech startup we are not we are an education company and so is byju so is an academy so is upgrad i strongly believe that interesting right what would you say would be an example of cuz we've seen this before right like for example we work was trying to pretend like they were a tech company then everybody realized you're not a tech company right um but what would you say is a company like an education company that you're aware of that is like heavily invested one thing that comes to mind is like duolingo that's one yes, that absolutely. pops up yes absolutely absolutely are are there some other examples that you're aware of i don't know if in the indian market necessarily but just like in general um okay let's think about it i think there was a company called newton in new york uh they were our neighbors so that's why I, i don't think they exist anymore but i think they were a true ed tech company because they were trying to create learning graphs for individual students right so they were essentially trying to map the way your brain learns something on a computer and then they were trying to sort of reverse engineer that when they teach you something new right so i think it was ahead of its time so it didn't it didn't sort of see the light of day but that would be an edtech company right uh, there are some gaming companies that are at the cusp of gaming and education so they try to teach you through games i think those companies would fall in the edtech bucket like right. the duolingos and, like the duolingos of the world yeah so what i'm what i'm kind of getting at here cuz i also want to add as much value for our viewers who are aspiring entrepreneurs right you're someone who's in education your family's in education you have a very good perspective on education what would it take to bring true edtech to the indian market just like a brainstorming session like sure we will answer that question but before that i would say one thing that even if you just offer good education no technology that's a great great business to start very that's fair yeah right masters union there's zero technology i mean we have like a learning management system and we have you know basic tech hygiene stuff but we are an education company and we can scale we can do well we can be profitable right there's this myth that you have to be a tech company to scale right harvard is not a tech company yet harvard's revenue is in the billions of dollars right some of the larger indian universities have tens of thousands of crores of revenue even though they are just a uh, education company not an education technology company right sure. so that's on the offline at that offline at that so offline businesses can scale we don't have to just be a tech company to scale so that's number one now to answer your question which is what ed tech 
companies people can start. Uh, let's look at a few dimensions, I think. So first is, I think, uh, how can we make education personalized? Right now, big challenge that I face is that for me, I have to treat each of my 60 students as a cohort, not as individuals, because I don't have the technology to understand and to track each student's progress, right? So if I'm teaching them algebra, I mean, just, just to dumb it down, if I'm teaching them algebra, they're 60 students, they lie on a spectrum on their understanding of algebra, but I'm giving them the same input, I'm giving them the same exam, right? So if there was a company that could help, um, you know, using the latest tech tools out there to help personalize education for teachers. So give teachers tools so that they know exactly where each student lies, right? Um, I think that would be, that could make a few great companies. Uh, second, I think is gaming, right? Uh, I truly believe that the way games hook people for like hours at a stretch, I think if we created our lessons in the form of games, we could make education also like very, something that people hook onto. So true. Right? Um, the third I think is like, so, you know, I was watching The Crown. Um, if you've seen The Crown. I've heard of it. I tried the first episode. Not for me. Not for you. All right. I watched it. I binge watched it. And I learned more about British history from watching The Crown than like any of the courses I've taken in my pre, like in, in college, right? So education and entertainment, when it sort of comes together, what you're doing, I mean, right? I'm sure more people would say that they've learned more from your channel than one of their courses, right? So if we can marry entertainment and education, if we can marry gaming and education, if we can marry, um, you know, AI, ML, and I'm not no expert on AI, ML, data science, but how we can sort of take those technologies and make education uh, uh, more, more convenient, more effective, more efficient. I think all those things would make for great businesses. Yeah. Um, there was this one company, which some of our students were working on. I don't know what happened with it, uh, which I thought was very cool. So they made a game, uh, which is a stock market simulator for high school students. Wow. Right? And the, 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 the way the competition worked was that you enter as Prathamittal and you enter as a St. Joseph's Boys School, whatever, right? And then the competition is between schools, so it's inter-school, right? And so now you're wearing like your school pride. I want to make sure that your school wins. So you go do deep research about Reliance and about Adani, and then you sort of make your portfolio and et cetera. And then like all the school students will make their individual portfolios and they will compete with other schools on whose average portfolio is doing better. Wow. Right? And this got like students who are in class eight, class seven, hooked onto the stock market. It's like trading, but with monopoly money, presumably. Yeah, exactly. Right? And, and it was the right game, and it was the right gamification. Right? And now those kids who are in class seven, class eight, are going around discussing price to earnings ratio. Right? This company's too overvalued. Right? So that to me, I think, uh, you know, those kind of opportunities would be great rather than just creating like another video hosted platform where you have like, you know, videos teaching you some stuff. Definitely. Wow. Fascinating. I think a lot of people watching this have already gotten like a hundred ideas from this conversation. Yeah, no, and I mean, like, uh, I was reading this somewhere that there's this university in, I think, Canada, I think somewhere um, where one of the most boring courses that, that they were taught that they were teaching or whatever, that had the least amount of engagement from students was thermodynamics, right? So what they did was, they made the, th they, they, they scrapped that class. They, they called it creating a go-kart. They named the course creating a go-kart. 
And so they had in groups of five or six, students had to build their own go-karts, right? And the professor's thought was that, hey, listen, if the students can create their go-karts and if they can sort of test their go-karts against certain parameters and they pass, I can understand and I can deem to believe that they understand heat transfer and thermodynamics. I don't have to test them on the numericals, etc. because as part of creating that, they have internalized heat transfer, they have internalized thermodynamics, which no amount of you know, numericals and problem statements and all of those things can do. So I think like if, I mean, there's a company, it's possible to create a company for every lesson that we teach in schools. Yeah, definitely. It seems like, yeah, like you said, people, they focus on the topic itself, thermodynamics. They don't actually make it interesting. They don't gamify it, at least traditional education, right? So, well, I really wish that, I really hope that Master's Union goes beyond, I don't know if that's part of the plan, but goes beyond just engineering and business and actually tackle some of these other subjects, like, for example, thermodynamics, or I guess that would fall in the category of maybe physics or like science or whatever, right? I almost failed those I'm courses. Gonna so. I'm gonna pause you here, right? Sure. No, Master's Union should focus on business, right? And we should solve this problem really well. That's the edtech mindset, right? Now that I've made my mark here, let me make my mark here, 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 here. True, true. And that's true. when you spread yourself too, too far, too wide and too thin. That's what we need to stay clear of. If, if we have figured out a solution to a problem, we should try to bring that solution to as many people, not go chasing other problems. Mm -hmm. Very true. Right? I mean, like... That's or at least, at least nail that down. Nail that down fully. Spend, like you said, like you spent 10 years, you know, uh, building your previous company and then... You know. Let's build a great MBA school before we start getting into like engineering and, and business, uh, you know, engineering and medicine, etc. Sure. So that's what I think that, you know, we have to sort of get outside of the startup mindset in some ways, right? Of, of You realize who you're talking to. Yeah, right? no, totally. You know, I mean, like... <laughs> get you, out of the startup mindset. But this, this startup mindset of trying to do everything, right? Just do one thing really well, right? Like, I mean... If you're a JE tutor, just become the best JE tutor. That's a big enough of a market. But the thing is that you're chasing certain metrics for your investors. So you have to get into NEAT. You have to get into this other exam. You have to get into class 12. You have to get into SATs and GMAT. No. Just do well there. Allen still just does JE and NEAT. They don't do, uh, uh, they don't do those uh, bank PO exams. They don't do GMAT. They don't do SAT. They're like, no, this is our market. We're just going to do this well. Sorry, this came out uh, very uh, passionately. It, it but I should. Truly believe it that. should. I mean, I think uh, we should probably quit while we're while we're ahead. That was like the culmination of this entire conversation. I think it's so true. Well, I mean, I was thinking as a photographer and as a former student, ex-student, probably never again student, right? That I wanted to have a master's union of photography. But what you're saying is so applicable, especially to the current situation, right? Where investors are basically just chasing after higher valuations and they're forcing, well, forcing is a strong word, but encouraging startup founders to, like you said, spread yourselves too thin. And don't worry, the funding will just keep coming. So you can keep expanding and you can keep sustaining those little territories that you've captured. But then suddenly in a funding winter, now we have a situation where none of this is sustainable without the drip feed of you know, venture capital. So, Absolutely. wow. Okay, I think we should wrap it up there. All right, awesome. And I'll let you go, but thank you so much for taking the time um, sharing, not just about Master's Union, but about your entire life. Uh, I thought it was 
a fascinating conversation. I, I definitely learned a lot. Thank and, you so much, uh, No, Thanks for having me. This was great. Yeah. All right. All right. And, and thank your team, too. I mean, I've, I've, I've interviewed, this is off, off the interview, but like I've, I've actually, uh, I think it's more than 100 founders that I've interviewed now. Wow. And I've had some good experiences. Uh, I've had some bad experiences. People who are just like, you're just giving us PR, basically, and you're basically just a tool to be used. But from leaving Bangalore to coming here and sitting down and talking to some people on your team, I mean, you're surrounded by really great people who are Thank super you. capable. I and I think that also reflects on you as an entrepreneur. Like, you have created this environment for yourself, mm -hmm. right? I mean, they also came because they believed in what you were doing. But I no, appreciate that. You know, it means everything. Yeah, because an entrepreneur is almost like more defined by the people that they surround themselves with than their own prowess and their own ideas. And so, just wanted to. No, thank you so much. I, I deeply appreciate. It. And uh, you know, I could I could get some students to talk to you as well, um, just for like I mean, not camera, just uh, yeah, yeah. like for you to see what you know what their perspective is. And sure. in the first year of sixty kids, fifteen ended up starting their own companies. They're all funded. I'm about to ask you this: How many actually ended up starting? Starting as so did you focus on entrepreneurship? We missed that actually part, but that was uh, it was totally my mistake. Actually, yeah. I should have brought that up. Uh, we had three funded companies out of the first sixty students, fifteen kids. Wow. 